All right, good morning, everyone. So John 1, and I'll give you some time to turn there if you're not there. And we're going to be starting in verse 19. All right, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an account to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Father, we just uh, come before you yet again as uh, very needy people, Lord. We we all need you. This is something that there's a very even playing field here. There's, we're all on even ground here because we all need you. We need your spirit to come. And, and, the, and the gift we need the most, Lord, is to see your glory. Lord, we know that just like Moses said, if I could see you, it'd be enough. And Lord, we need that. We need to sense your presence. We need to see your son more clearly. We need you. We don't need to hear the thoughts and opinions of a man. We don't need to uh, have some sort of psychological needs met, Lord. We need you. And so we pray that you would come, that you would show your son to us. Seeing him, we'd be transformed. Leave here knowing that we had met with the living God. And we know, Lord, that you love your children. You desire to feed your children. So we pray, Lord, that you would do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, thanks for coming. Uh, My name is Eric Cobb. I'm the campus pastor here. Um, teach most of the time. Sometimes uh, others will teach. Josh is going to teach next week, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, it'll be good. You guys can clap for that. Josh, there he is. All right, good. Getting the clapping. You guys can clap for that, you know? Okay, there we go. It stopped really abruptly, didn't it? It was like, what's going on here? Just like uh, Bree read there, we're in John 1. Awesome passage here about John the Baptist. A lot of you guys, even those of you guys who didn't grow up in the church or have a lot of church experience, probably have heard something about John the Baptist. But it's super important, guys, that we, that we understand the historical context here of John's ministry. Um, John is, uh, is coming on the stage at a time, a very interesting time in Israel's history, after a 400-year period of silence. 
And, um, and so what happened is God sent many prophets throughout the time in Israel's uh, life and, uh, and spoke to the people. But for 400 years before John came, there were no prophets. Um, if you guys open up your Bibles here and you find where the New Testament starts, um, if you have one with you, it's interesting to look at because if you look at the last book of the uh, Old Testament here, Malachi, and then you got uh, Matthew. Look how much of it's Old Testament, by the way. Huge amount. Okay. And there's concordance here, too. Um, but in this period right here between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400-year period of silence. So Malachi speaks these last words at the end of chapter 4 of Malachi, and then John the Baptist comes. You should have a lot of blank pages in here, shouldn't you? Like, I don't know, if we're taking notes or something, because that's what happened. There was this huge period of time, this 400-year time span. And the Jews see that as well. If you look in the Babylonian Talmud, um, it says that after the latter prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. That was the prevailing view. Um, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, said that there were no new words from God after Malachi. And uh, that would have been about 435 B.C. And then all of a sudden, um, God breaks the silence. It's thinking about this, though. What was God doing during that 400-year period? So he's spending 400 years where he's not sending prophets. He's not speaking to his people in an authoritative way. What was he doing? And I was thinking about it, and, you know, was he giving them silent treatment? Was it just like, hey, I've had enough, and I'm going to just kind of give you the silent treatment? No, the Lord's not doing that. What's he doing? He's building anticipation, okay? So he speaks through Malachi. He tells them some instructions about the end times, and then he, 400 years of silence. And then how does God break the silence? It's interesting. The way God breaks the silence is by a crazy man yelling in the desert. At least that's what he would have looked like. He wasn't a crazy man, but he looked like a crazy man. If you look at Matthew 3, 4, it says that John the Baptist wore a garment of camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and for his food was locusts and honey. And you think, ooh, paleo. And it is, uh, but it's not low carb, you know, because you got all this honey. I mean, imagine this guy, imagine this John the Baptist. God's been silent for all this time, and then the prophet comes, and it's John the Baptist, and he's got this sticky beard, you know, and all you bearded folks know about how you save things in your beard. Imagine if you're eating locusts and honey, you know, you've got the honey on the beard, it's really trapping things. You got little, like, you know what a locust is, basically grasshoppers is what he was eating. So he's this very crazy looking man. And he said things that seemed crazy at the time. He's baptizing Jews, which would have been kind of crazy to the Jews because they're thinking, we're already God's covenant people. What, what do you need to wash us for? What do you need to you know, cleanse us to bring us into, into, God's, um, into a relationship with God? We're already Jews. And then there was the way he talked to the religious people. The religious leaders who the people would have held in high esteem, they came out, and some of them, it says in Matthew 3, it says, but... When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which were some of the religious leaders, coming to his baptism, you know what he said to them? Welcome. No. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So seeker, huh? He, he, and some of people actually concluded that John had a demon. They thought, this guy's too crazy, he's too strange, and this is the guy God sends. And I was just reflecting on it this week, and it's so strange that God often sends the most unusual people, especially throughout the Old Testament. The things he told some of these prophets to do were bizarre. 
And you think, what kind of God does this? I mean, uh, if you look at, you guys are familiar with Jonah, right? He's vomited out of a sea creature, then goes to preach. That's a strange intro. Um, Isaiah was told to walk around naked for three years, naked and barefoot for three years, so that he could say that Egypt was going to be stripped naked. In fact, the passage says that, that Egypt, you will be stripped naked, and everybody's going to see your buttocks. I'm serious, ESV, that's what it says, okay? <laughs> Ezekiel was told to lay on, one, on his left side for 390 days, and then after that, flip over and do 40 days on the other side, to show that Israel was going to be judged for 390 days, and then Judah was going to be judged, sorry, years, and then Judah was going to be judged for 40 years. Later, Ezekiel was also told to bake cakes over a fire of dried human feces. Okay? And Ezekiel said, oh, Lord, please no. And the Lord said, all right, you can use cow feces. He's like, like, yeah, it won't be as impacting, but go ahead. Hosea was commanded to marry a prostitute, right? to be a symbol for God's people were prostituting themselves away from God. And, and she didn't stop working, and she had children. And God commanded um, Hosea to name his kids not loved and not my people. Family issues, right? I mean, it's hard to be a prophet, right? Um, Jeremiah, this is a great one. Jeremiah was told, go buy a new loincloth, which is underwear, basically. Hide it in some rocks. Come back after a long time and find it, and you'll see that it doesn't work as underwear anymore. And then go to the people with this underwear and say, you guys have become like this, spoiled and useless, like this underwear. I mean, God has used some very strange ways to communicate to his people. Very strange people have come as prophets, and they're just following directions. I mean, none of these guys was it their idea. And I was thinking, what does this say about our God that he communicates with people this way? You might say, he's fun. I don't think that's the main point. I think, though, that he's more concerned about people than he's concerned about propriety. Okay? He's more concerned about your soul than entering the culture in some culturally appropriate way. He doesn't care about culturally appropriate if it means that he's going to let you slip through his fingers. He cares more about getting the point across than, than following cultural norms. And I was just thinking about for us, are we that way? Are we willing to do whatever it takes to help people know about Jesus? God's that way. Um, Another thing it says is that God is not opposed to making you feel very uncomfortable and awkward. Any amens out there? Anybody like God's kind of brought them through a very uncomfortable and awkward time? And you think, God certainly wouldn't do this to me. Tell Jeremiah, you know, (laughs) tell Isaiah as he's walking around naked for three years. Like, God would never do this to me. And it's like, well, actually he would. Um, and so God cares more about us than, than the pathway. I mean, he's willing to bring us through uncomfortable and awkward circumstances. And, and not surprisingly, guys, John the Baptist caught the attention of the Jewish religious leadership back in Jerusalem. And it wasn't just because of his weird behavior, but because people were flocking to him. If you look in Matthew 3, 5, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions around the Jordan were coming out to John the Baptist, and they were being baptized in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And so they are coming out to find out what's up with this guy. He's acting really strange. He's looking really strange. And they had to because it would have been irresponsible of them not to come check out who this guy is because he's having such an impact. So they send this delegation. Look at verse 19. They send a delegation. And, and this delegation from the Jews, they, the Jews uh, when it says Jews, it doesn't just mean the Jewish people. It means the Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders sent 
priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Say, who are you? And they have three guesses. And their three guesses that they have about who John the Baptist is are all from the Old Testament prophecy about the end times. So there were all these things that God was telling his people like, I'm going to come, I'm going I'm to visit you guys, I'm going to come and do great things, but first I'm going to send some people. And so there's these three persons that are in the Old Testament. It says in verse 20, he, John the Baptist confessed, but he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And he answered him, and they answered him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. These three figures that are associated with Old Testament prophecy, the first one's the Christ. The Christ is the same word that we know as Messiah, and it means anointed one. And the anointing is really, an anointing from God is really a special experience of God's presence and power. And we see that through the Old Testament of people, different people having special um, experiences with God's presence and power. And sometimes it would be symbolized by anointing oil. And we often see really important people having this, right? We see um, prophets being anointed. We see priests being anointed. We especially see kings with God's anointing. And the Jews had this expectation that at some point there was going to come the anointed one, right? And he was going to be both prophet, priest, and king. And he would have God's presence upon them. So they're waiting for this Christ. He says, it's not me. And then they say, well, what about Elijah? Why do they bring that up? If you look at that gap in your Bible, the last thing that Malachi says before he kind of signs off and it goes silent for 400 years is he says, Behold, I am sending you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He says, so there was this Elijah-like figure, not that Elijah was really going to come back, but somebody like Elijah was going to come. And what does he say? It's not me. You know what's interesting? John the Baptist is actually wrong about this, which I think is interesting. If you look at um, the book of Matthew, Jesus actually says that John the Baptist was fulfilling that, that, um, uh, that Elijah position, that he was that forerunner spoken of in Malachi. But John the Baptist just didn't have that understanding. John the Baptist isn't perfect. He doesn't have perfect knowledge. He doesn't know that he's fulfilled this category, which is interesting because he's what? Wearing John the Baptist's clothes. Okay, big hint. He's like, oh, you know, gets heaven. Was that why I was always attracted to the camel hair and, you know, the leather? I just thought that was my style, you know? And his father was told, actually, before he was born, was told that John would actually fill this role, being Elijah who would come before the Christ comes. And yet, you know what's interesting about this is that even without complete understanding of God's plan or even of who he was, he was used by God in a big way. I think that's really important for us because some here are kind of heavy-duty theologian types. Some here are just starting to seek the Lord and just starting to see who Jesus is. And what this tells us is we all have something to offer. You know, you say, I don't know a lot of theology. Well, you can learn it. But even before that, you should share what you know. So many times, guys, people's lives have been radically changed by people who knew very little. We're going to see a little bit later in the book of John that um, when the woman at the well comes to know Jesus, she immediately goes and tells her whole community, and there's a huge revival because of it. And so share what you know. God's the life changer. We're not the life changer, right? So he's not Christ, the Christ. He is Elijah, but doesn't know it. And what about the prophet? He says, are you the prophet? That's from Deuteronomy 18. Moses was told by the Lord that someday a prophet bigger than Moses would come. 
And it says there, um, the Lord said to Moses, he says, I will raise up from them a prophet like you, this is God speaking to Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I've commanded. And whoever listens to my words that he shall speak in my name will live. And so Deuteronomy 18, even way back in the time of Moses, was saying there's, there's the prophet coming. And he says, I'm not that either. Actually, Jesus fulfills that one. And so they go, well, you know, who are you then? Look at verse 22. Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who have sent us. You know, they're like, come on, help us out, you know. We need to go back to headquarters. We don't really like being out here in the desert with you. We're done. We're city people. Tell us, who are you? Just give us something. I don't even care what it is. I need an answer. And do you see what he says in verse 28? They say, who are you? He says, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. I just think those are epic lines. I was just thinking about that. That deserves Morgan Freeman's voice right there, right? You know, who are you? I'm the voice. It's like so cool. I just love that. I don't know why. He's quoting here Isaiah 40. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He's quoting Isaiah 40. And it would be really great for you guys to spend some time on Isaiah 40. And, um, and this comes back to something I mentioned last week. Last week I had mentioned in John 1.1 1, 1, that certain groups, especially the Jehovah's Witnesses, have a translation that's different, and they have changed... John 1.1, 1, 1, to say, instead of saying, um, and the word was God, they put, and the word was a God, okay? So that somehow Jesus is not really God. He's a God, he's a lesser being, something like that. Um, this is a great passage, guys, because um, this has not been changed in their New World Translation. Theirs reads just like this. They have the same thing that, that uh, John the Baptist said. And it's a great way to kind of show uh, a person that's a Jehovah's Witness that Jesus is God. And it, and it works kind of like this. You, you ask them, John 1, 23, you say, you know, you read that for him. John the Baptist says, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And, and you just ask him, you go, so who's the Lord in that passage? And they'll correctly answer, it's Jesus, right? Because in the context, we can see that's who he's preparing the way for. You said, that's right. Do you know where this quote's from? And they will. It's from Isaiah 40. And you said, that's right. Let's look at it. And then if you go to Isaiah 40 and you see, it, in Isaiah 40, he says the same line. He says, um, there's a voice crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. And then it goes on to describe the Lord. And this is how, it, how this passage describes that Lord. That Lord, it says in verse 12 of Isaiah 40, measures out the waters of the sea in the hollow of his hand. He marks off the heavens with a span. He encloses the dust of the earth in a measure and weighs the mountain on scales. Verse 15 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop in the buck to him and like dust on a balance. It says in verse 22 that this Lord sits upon the circle of the earth and all of the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers to him. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads it out like a tent. It says in verse 26 of Isaiah 40, lift up your eyes and see on high who created these stars. And it talks about this Lord saying he calls them out by name. Billions of stars, he calls them out by name. Verse 28, it says about this Lord, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. And then I'll ask him, who is the Lord in Isaiah 40? And they'll say, it's Jehovah, right? It's the Lord God. And then we'll go back to John. 
well, John said that this passage is about Jesus. And you're saying that that passage is about Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah. I mean, it's a pretty straight, um, straightforward thing when you show both passages next to each other. And this isn't a small issue. Some of you guys who maybe aren't from a church background could go, why do you guys argue about little things like this? Um, and I've even talked to Jehovah's Witnesses and said, hey, you know, we all like reading the Bible. It's all good. There's a significant difference here, guys. And I'll illustrate it this way. If Jesus were to appear right now, this is what I've told him before. If Jesus would appear right now, I will bow down and worship him as God, and you won't. That's a big deal. One of us is in serious error. Either I'm committing the worst form of idolatry, or you're failing to recognize who God is. One of us is really wrong. Because there's this whole thing, kind of religious dialogue, that we start going like, well, you know, we all believe in God, it's no big deal. That's a big deal. That's a big deal to Jesus. Okay, He's either God and should be worshipped, or he's not and shouldn't be. And he is God and should be worshipped. Um, John the Baptist, let's go back to him. John the Baptist, how does he see himself? It's really great. Verse 23, he says, he's a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. I love this imagery here. He says, make straight the way of the Lord. What's going on? He's using the metaphor of a road improvement project. He's like, make the road straight. Okay? And we know a little bit about road improvement here in Menifee, don't we? Okay? Um, how many people have spent 15 minutes on the Newport 215 overpass? I have. Okay? I've spent a literal 15 minutes, and I'm using that word literally. Um, and you'll sit at the intersection coming back from the college, and they'll like let four cars go at a time. And there's 400 cars. So that takes a while. Now, that was not literal. Um, you know, it's... It's really, I mean, it's really kind of the only downside of living here is that, that, that crazy traffic. Um, in ancient times, before a king would visit, they would improve stuff like that, okay? They wouldn't leave it like that before the king came. Take a look at Isaiah 40, verse 3. It says, A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, right? So every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain brought low, and every hill made low, and the uneven ground made level, and the rough places plain. I almost want to sing this. You guys familiar with the Messiah, Handel's Messiah? And the real, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's an awesome piece of scripture. But um, if Menifee were going to receive the president, we'd fix that junk, right? We'd fix that. We don't want the presidential motorcade going, oh, another four cars, another four cars, another four cars, right? In Isaiah 40, the visiting king is who? God. Isn't that awesome? So, Isaiah has been sent, I'm sorry, John the Baptist has been sent to prepare Israel for a visit from God. And his job with the people, metaphorically, is to remove all the obstacles that are in between them and God. And guys, this is so needed even now, isn't it? There's so much confusion about who Jesus is. There's so much confusion about what he's done. There's so much confusion about what God requires. I mean, that's why we're doing this, right? We want to remove obstacles between people and God. How about in your own life? I was just thinking about the obstacles, right? What are the obstacles in your own life between you and God? God plans to visit. We've got a bunch of junk in the way. What is that stuff? I was thinking about things. You might have questions. You might be like, ah, you know, I get that God's good, and I'm over here, and I'd like to be closer to him and know him, but there's, there's questions I have, which is awesome. Please ask them. We love questions. We love giving answers to questions. Or you could say, I have so many doubts, Ask those too. We would love to answer those. Like, there's people in this room 
that live for that. I sometimes have non-Christians that'll say stuff like, hey, I hope you're not offended, but I got this question. And I'm like, I'm not offended. I've been waiting for this question. You know, like, that's what I do. That's what we do here. So ask it. Or there might be habitual sin. You know, like, I want to be close to the Lord, but this thing keeps getting in the way. Or it might be discouragement, you know, discouragement from the past. Guys, what needs to be removed to, to really receive him? We want to help you with that. Not just me. We want to help you with that. We want to be a community that helps everyone take their next step towards Jesus. We want to be a place that does what John the Baptist did. Um, But to do that, there's a lot of work. (laughs) There's a lot of work as a community. And so let's look at this. John the Baptist is also an excellent example of humble service. Take a look at verse 25. They asked John the Baptist, they asked him, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Like, what credentials do you have? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you don't know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan. John was baptizing. John the Baptist, guys, is a great example of willing, humble service to us. And we need that because here we are. We're all volunteers. I don't know if you realize that. I'm a volunteer. Don't get paid. Nobody here is getting paid for anything. This is all volunteer. Isn't that crazy? Like, God's doing something if people are like, I'd like to do a bunch of work, you know? It's cool. It's really neat. Um, But there's a lot to do, right? We're a new church campus, and there's a lot of things to do. There's things like children's ministry, right? There's things like setup. There's things like greeting. Greeting's so important. I mean, were you guys greeted well? Anybody want to say they weren't greeted well? We'll we'll follow up with you after. Um, Want to greet people well? Hospitality, you know, those donuts. There's donuts out there. There's at least one that has an Oreo on it, okay? It's been cut in half, which is standard church stuff. Standard church would actually be to cut it in an eighths, okay? But we're not doing that. We're generous. We're hospitable. So you get a half a donut. You can take both halves. Nobody's going to know. There's one with Fruit Loops on it. I mean, it's crazy out there, okay? There's gluten-free stuff, and the two have not commingled. Um, there's setup. There's greeting. There's hospitality. There's worship. There's children's ministry. There's communion setup. There's campus evangelism. You could talk to Chad. Chad's right here in the hat. That was the best, most authoritative. Chad's right here in the hat. Okay, good. Josh raised his hand, which was really confusing. Um, That one's Chad. He does campus evangelism every Thursday from 1230 to 2. There's sound and tech. There's all kinds of things to do. There's children's ministry (laughs) to do. Children's ministry. Children's ministry. Ministry of the children. Ministry to children. We have that too. And it's good. So as a new church campus, um, you know, and the thing is, as a new church campus, we can't, we're not all really serving in our sweet spot necessarily. We're serving wherever we're needed, right? A lot of you guys are shaking your heads. Yes, like my, my strong suit isn't what I'm doing right now. And that's okay. Like God has us right now serving in somewhat awkward roles sometimes wherever we're needed. And this is really helpful for us, though, to see John the Baptist and see his motivation because John the Baptist had an awkward assignment. John the Baptist had a tough assignment because God tells him, go baptize all these people, make a big scene, baptize all these people, tell them to wait for the coming one, and then doesn't tell him who the coming one is. You see how awkward that is? So you go out there, make a lot of noise, get people to all get baptized and wait, and then I'll let you know later what to do next. This is awkward. You could imagine some of the people that are already baptized coming out, you know, and saying, is he here yet? Nope. Next day. Is he here yet? Nope. Next day. Is he here yet? Nope. 
We got all baptized and we're waiting. I know. We're waiting. He <laughs> doesn't tell him exactly who he is. Look at verse 33. I myself, this is John the Baptist speaking, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said, he upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that's the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It's not that John had never met the Messiah. It's not that John had never met Jesus. They were actually cousins. They were six months apart. John the Baptist was six months older. And so they knew each other, but he didn't know that his cousin was the Messiah. Isn't that wild? Think about some of our histories and how uh, the Messiah, Jesus, was right under our nose for years and years, and yet we didn't really know him. Um, John the Baptist didn't know. He was just told that at some point he's going to see the Holy Spirit descend on a person, and that's the Messiah. And so John the Baptist, we don't know how, for how long he was ministering, whether it was months or years, but he was given this kind of incomplete message and no next steps. And so he has the person after person going, is he here yet? Is he here yet? No, no, no. Then on top of that, I'm sure he had the religious leaders coming out, saying, you know, the fancy robes coming out in the desert, and saying things like, well, you know, you brought us all the way out here in the desert, and you want us to wash in this river. Who exactly is the coming one? And he's like, um, I don't know. And they're like, told you, he's crazy. Let's get out of here, you know? Um, but John the Baptist, he is a, he's a serving the Lord obediently, even though he doesn't have clarity. And I was just thinking about us. How many of you guys are right now serving the Lord in the way, only way you know how, lacking clarity in an awkward situation? That's a common thing. It's a common thing where we're just waiting for more information. What was John the Baptist's secret, though, guys, for his humble service? Here he is in this awkward place with lack of clarity. What was his secret to his humble service? What kept him going? What made him tick? Take a look at verse 22. It said, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John the Baptist saw himself as totally unworthy to even untie Jesus' shoes. That's what made him tick. I'll explain. All service to God's people is actually service to Christ himself. You realize that? You probably did, but listen to this verse. Matthew 25 says, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these my brothers, which are who? The church, people in the church, you did it to me. Isn't that powerful? So anytime you're serving, no matter what it is, to God's people, you're actually serving Jesus. And, and let me just ask you a convicting question. Is there any service opportunity in the church that you think is beneath you? I was thinking about that this week, and I had some, and I won't share them. It's convicting, right? There are things that we go, well, that's not really my gifting, which is really like, that's beneath me, is what we're saying, right? Um, John saw that there was no service to Jesus that was beneath him. He actually saw that he was beneath any service to Jesus, He's like, I'm beneath any service to Jesus. I can't even untie his shoes. I can't even serve him in the most lowly way. He was blown away that he would have any role to serve. And I just love that, guys. Any kind of service to Jesus is a massive privilege, isn't it? We have to remember this because it's so easy. I do it too. You're like, oh, it's a burden. It's Sunday again. I got to do this or I got to do that. Or throughout the week, I got to do this or I got to do that. Guys, anything God gives us to do for each other, is a massive privilege because you're serving Jesus. Isn't that wild? That totally puts it in perspective. That's his secret. That's how he keeps going, is he's blown away by who Jesus is. So what blew him away? What did he see? Let's let him say. Verse 29. Let's hear from John the Baptist. He says in verse 29, Behold, 
the Lamb of God. He's looking at Jesus. He comes up. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man whose rank was before me, because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that, I might, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. He gives three descriptions of Jesus here. He, he calls him the, the Lamb of God. He calls him the one who baptizes with the Spirit. And he calls him the Son of God. We're only going to do the first two. Firstly, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He says he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And to Jews who were prepared by their history, they would have known exactly what that meant, Right? They would have known exactly what that meant. When they heard Lamb of God, it would remind them of a long history of sacrificial lambs, of sacrificial animals. It would have started with Passover, right? Um, when they left Egypt, um, they, he had each family slay a um, lamb and put the blood on the doorpost so that they wouldn't be judged along with the Egyptians. And then for thousands of years, there were animal sacrifices, right? Um, last Wednesday... Um, was Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. That would have been a day when they did two things. There would have been one sacrificial animal, which would have been killed, and there would have been another one, a scapegoat, that's where we get the term, that they would have confessed their sins on the goat, and then they would have run it out of town. And the idea was is that all our sins are on this animal, and it's gone, right? That goat came back, there's trouble. You know, <laughs> So they would run that goat out of town, and that was the scapegoat. That's where the term scapegoat comes from. And these things didn't remove their sin, but they all pointed forward to the true Lamb of God, right? Who takes away the sins of the world. So they would have waited with anticipation. When's that true Lamb of God coming? When's the real scapegoat coming that removes all of our sin? And John says, he's finally here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Guys, this speaks to an important point, is that this whole book here, this is one book. You know, it isn't that, you know, the New Testament's awkwardly attached to the Old Testament. I showed you how small it could be. You know, we just take this part off, carry this around, way, way easier. It's one story, guys. It's not a series of God's kind of failed attempts to fix his people and kind of get them on track. He's weaving a story like a master storyteller. He's putting all kinds of foreshadowing and planting clues like a real craftsman. And so when he even created lambs in the beginning, when he decided, I'm going to have little, fluffy, innocent animals called lambs, he was thinking, this is what I'm going to use as a metaphor for my son. So it wasn't like he went along and then he brings Jesus and he goes, oh, you know what would be cool? <laughs> lambs. You know, like that fits perfect. I didn't see that coming. We've been doing all these sacrifices and he's going to do a sacrifice. It wasn't like that, right? He actually planted all these things in their history to point them to Jesus. And the reason why is so there'd be a richness when he came, that he would pop when he came. And so he cries out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What's the problem the Lamb solves here? The problem's sin, right? The problem's guilt. We've all done wrong things that we need to make right. Okay, and even if you're not a Christian, you realize this, you know? You see this, even if you're not a Christian. Um, you know, recently we have a presidential candidate that famously does not apologize for anything. And so the media keeps coming back to him going like, so is there anything at all you feel like apologizing for? And he's like, nope. 
You know, he's like, no, no, if I did anything wrong, I would, but you know, I haven't. And the media keeps asking because it's strange, right? We're all like, come on, man. You've done wrong things because we all know, whether Christian or non-Christian, we all know that we've done wrong things that need to be atoned for, right? That need to be made right. That whole day of atonement that's still practiced. It's because everybody knows there's something that they need to make right. And we can't make it right. You know, there's some things that we've tried to kind of make right and we feel like, oh, I kind of patched that up. There's other things we have no way to make them right. And so that's what Jesus comes to do. He comes to take away the sins of the world. He comes to be a solution to your guilt. And so I just say to you guys, whether you came in a believer or not a believer, my hope and my prayer would be that you would receive that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Leave without guilt. You'll say, oh, religion's all about guilt. I agree. The gospel is not about guilt. Jesus is not about guilt. You should leave without guilt. He takes away the sins of the world. Have you guys ever, because some of you guys will turn it over, and you're like, you know, Jesus forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, right? You kind of do that thing. Have you guys ever forgiven somebody for something, and then they keep acting like they're not forgiven? You know, you say, no, it's okay, I forgive you. And then a little bit later, it's like, oh, man, you know, I still feel bad about that thing, and let me make it up to you. It's like, no, dude, I forgave you. How do you feel when they keep doing that? Annoyed is universal. So everybody used the same word, annoyed. Do you know what, the way we honor Jesus? We honor Jesus by receiving that forgiveness and then moving forward without guilt. That honors him. Because our religious impulse says, you know what, the right thing to do would be to keep beating myself up about it so I can kind of show I'm serious. He's like, no. The way you can really honor my sacrifice, my death on the cross, is by receiving it and walking away and leaving it. And so my prayer for you guys that are believers that are kind of carrying stuff around on your backs is that even as we worship him today, that you would leave it here. You leave it at the foot of the cross. You repent of it. You walk away. You don't carry guilt. That's what would honor Jesus. Behold, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and that includes yours. Secondly, Jesus is the spirit baptizer. This is a a stranger part of the text where he says that the Spirit descended upon Jesus and that he is the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I was just thinking about that this week. Because there's two descriptions here. The solution that he is the Lamb of God takes away our sin. But this Spirit baptism deals with something else. It deals with the fact we have a lack of power and a lack of energy to live for God. Anybody here feel like they have a lack of power and a lack of energy to follow God? Ever? Okay. Well, someday you will. I do. Anybody ever feel like they have a lack of energy, a lack of power to follow God as they want to? Okay, good. Now, a few more. Okay. You might want to talk to the guys that don't. I don't know. Maybe they found something. Um, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would empower people, right? He would come upon them. You see things like Samson, who's really not a good guy at all. And every once in a while, the Holy Spirit would come upon him. He'd be able to do amazing things, mostly attack people, Okay. Um, The Holy Spirit would come upon people and empower them throughout the Old Testament, but it was temporary. What's cool here is that the Holy Spirit, John says, came upon Jesus at his baptism and remained. And so Jesus is God in the flesh, the Holy Spirit remaining on him to where he can actually hand out the Holy Spirit to other people. He can actually baptize other people with the Holy Spirit, who's a person, by the way. What does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Like, what is this? It's, the word baptism, baptizo, means immersion. Jesus has the ability to immerse you in the Holy Spirit, to immerse you in the divine life. 
to soak you and infuse you with God's presence. That's a cool power. That's something he can do. That's something no one else can do. Jesus is able to do that. And and that solves some of our problems. A little bit later in the Gospel of John, he says you'll never thirst again. What's that about? You won't be driven by blinding spiritual thirst, but you'll be satisfied on the inside. Um, It also means that you'll be gushing with the life of God. You know, that you'd be submerged in the Holy Spirit such that the life of God gushes out of you. Isn't that cool? I was just thinking of like a sponge that's like oversaturated, right? You can't fit any more water in it. If you just touch it, it oozes water, right? Jesus comes to give us a life so full of the presence and power of God that we exude the life of God to everyone around us. You want that? This is like, this is as good as being the Lamb of God, right? I mean, I need both of these things, right? I need both of these. You might say, well, I'm not there. And I'm I'm not there either. But what a great thing to pursue. You know, this is something Jesus says we can have. And my hope is just to somehow, in this lifetime, live into that reality, right? That's what discipleship's about. Discipleship is about pursuing this. Pursuing Jesus to more and more infuse you with the Holy Spirit. N.T. Wright says, Only when the Lamb was killed for the world's sin can the Spirit of the living God be poured out on His people. We are temples that have been made clean by the Lamb, and now we're ready to be inhabited by the Spirit. And that's what John the Baptist saw, guys. That's what he saw in Jesus. And that's why he felt like, I'm not even worthy to do anything for this man. You know? And then Jesus came to all of us, right? Maybe he's just coming to you this morning for the first time and says... Come with me. I'll take away your sin. I'll fill you with my spirit. And then I have a role for you to play in the kingdom. A role that has eternal significance. And our response is like, what do you want me for? You know, you're the Lamb of God. It takes away the sins of the world. You're the one who can baptize with the spirit. What do you want me for? And then you think, man, he'll let me serve him. He'll let me include him. I'll do anything, right? I'll do anything he asks. Happy to do it. How about you? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come before you and just thank you for your word. And um, I want to just pray for, for anyone here that's come in weighed down with guilt, Lord. Um, and we know from this passage that you have sent the Lamb of God, your Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And we just pray, Lord, that each one of us, whether we came in knowing you or not, would leave without guilt because we've entrusted our whole lives to your Son that we would receive that. And I want to pray too for those that hear life infused by God, an oversaturated sponge that oozes your presence and thinks, that's not me, that can't be me. Lord, please, Lord, give a gift of faith to them. Give a gift of faith to me that we can live a different kind of life, Lord, that we would leave here seeking you in a greater way with full hope and assurance that you will change our lives. And we pray, Lord, too, that as we kind of move out here and continue to um, be a community here, to be a light post, to be an outpost of the kingdom, to, to help people take another step towards your son, we just pray, Lord, that you'd bless it as you already have. It's amazing what you've made happen so far. Um, and, and we just pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that. And you do it for your glory, Lord. We preach not ourselves, but your son and him crucified. And we pray, Lord, that nothing would change in that. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.